All right. So last week we started this series on the Lord's Supper and, and last week I introduced a lot of questions, right? I don't know if you remember, but if you weren't here last week, by the way, you can go online uh, and find the, at least the audio recording and I'm, I'm not sure if there's a video recording or not, but at least the audio recording on there that you can uh, listen to. And so last week we, we started talking about the Lord's Supper, introduced a lot of questions last week, and then we talked mainly about how the Lord's Supper has a vertical dimension, how it has something to do with our relationship between us and God, uh, but it also has a horizontal dimension. It has something to do with our relationship with one another and how, how when we observe the Lord's Supper, when we have the Lord's Supper together, that it, is, uh, it really is a communion between us and God, but it really also is a communion between us and each other and how we're, we're preaching a sermon to one another in, in words. Uh, and Jesus, or, or Paul quoted Jesus, said, do this in remembrance of me um, uh, until I come, right? Paraphrased. So tonight we want to look at, at, at another question, uh, and then la- next week we'll look at kind of several questions kind of grouped together, and then the last week, uh, which will be the 26th, we'll have a big panel discussion here at the church with all four of your pastors, and you can ask any question you want to. Um, if questions come up, if you've already thought of questions, you're free to just ask them that day. Uh, but also, if you want to submit them beforehand, you can do that. You can write them down and give them to one of us, or you can email uh, one of us your questions um, if you just want to give them to us in, in advance, so we'll have some time to think about a good answer. Or uh, if you're kind of shy or whatever, don't want to don't want to uh, ask them in front of everyone else, then you're welcome to do that. Tonight, though, I want to ask answer one question: What is happening? when we have the Lord's Supper. What is happening when we have the Lord's Supper? Okay, uh, and we're gonna, gonna look at six different views. Some of them are pretty closely related, but six different views. And so, um, and so the first view is, and some of these have some pretty big names, but we'll talk about those too. The first view is transubstantiation, which is the view that the Catholic Church um, holds to, and some other, other churches hold to a view pretty similar to that, basically the same thing. Um, and then the second view is called consubstantiation, and we'll talk about that one. That's the, the Lutheran view. And then we'll talk about the spiritual presence view, which is what uh, most Presbyterian churches uh, believe. And then very briefly, we'll talk about the Methodist view and the Pentecostal view, and then we'll talk about years. Okay? So first of all, transubstantiation, and this is a big word, right? Another way to think about the, the Catholic view is the real presence of the Lord, um, or just the Catholic view. When we talk about the Lord's Supper, by the way, uh, some different traditions do this. The Catholic Church is one. Uh, they don't really ever talk about the Lord's Supper. They talk about the Mass, right? And, and sometimes you might think of the whole, uh, the whole Catholic service is called the Mass, right? You'll drive by, um, what is it now, Blessed Mother of Calcutta? Uh, used to be St. Jerome, you drive by there, and on their sign they'll have times for the Mass. And so we think of the whole service as called the Mass, but really the reason the whole service is called that is because that's what they call the Lord's Supper, is the Mass. And that's the most important part of the Catholic Church service. So if you come into a, uh, into really any kind of Protestant church, a Baptist church or Presbyterian or Methodist or, or that kind of thing, uh, you can tell this difference even in the architecture and the furniture. And so like in a, in a Baptist church, in a Presbyterian, Methodist church, in, in any real uh, Protestant church, you'll notice that right in the center of the stage is the pulpit, right? And that's not just because that's kind of the best place to speak from, where everybody gets a good view. It's because during the Reformation, the pulpit was moved to the center of the 
of the platform because that is the central part of the worship service in a Protestant church is the preaching of the word. Well, if you go to a, a Catholic church, maybe some of you have before or, or other kinds of churches, you may have noticed the pulpit is not in the center of the church. Uh, it'll be off to one side. And sometimes they'll have kind of two lecterns off to one side. One will be shorter and one will be taller. Uh, some churches have that. And the smaller, the shorter one is for the, um, uh, the, uh, the person who's leading the service. The, the lect- uh, I forget what it's called, the lector. I forget what, it's, what that person's called. But it's the person who kind of leads the, um, the, the liturgy. It's called the liturgist. The person who leads the, the liturgy, the, the, the prayers that are prayed in unison and, and confessions and things like that that they're, that they're saying together. And then the taller pulpit is used for, uh, for the priest to preach from. But in the very center of a Catholic church, up against the, the, the back wall or the front wall, depending on how you look at the sanctuary, uh, the center of the, of the church is the altar. And that's where the, the Lord's Supper or the Mass takes place, okay? So in a Catholic church, the, the, the Mass is the, is the most important part of the service, which is why the whole service is called the Mass. Uh, sometimes, you know, this kind of comes across in, in, in Baptist churches or Protestant churches growing up, especially if you were, when you were younger, you might've talked about going to Sunday school and then going to preaching, right? And what you meant was you're going to the, to the, to big church, right? The, the main service, but sometimes the, the main service is called preaching, Sunday school and then preaching and, and preaching is the most important part of our service. And so that kind of takes on the, the, the whole service called by that. And the same thing with the Catholic church and with the, with the mass. So what's happening, or what do Catholics believe is happening when they celebrate the Mass? <coughs> uh, so we don't need to go real deep, kind of, or off to the side in, in the weeds on this, um, but it's really helpful for us to think about uh, a Greek philosopher named Aristotle. There were two really important Greek philosophers back in the day, Plato and Aristotle, and in some ways they were kind of opposites of each other. Uh, they were students of, of each other. I think Plato was older and Aristotle was Plato's student and then Aristotle kind of changed some of Plato's ideas. I, I could have that backwards. But either way, they were kind of opposites of each other. But Aristotle had this idea that's important that helps us to understand the Catholic view of the Lord's Supper. He had this view of the world, of everything in creation as a substance and accidents. Okay, now when he says accidents, he doesn't mean like a mistake or something that, that, that happens not on purpose. Uh, when he says substance, he means like the, the core of what that thing is, the essence or the core of what that thing is. And then the accidents are the uh, kind of the things about that, about that thing that are circumstantial. Okay, so we think of, and we take that across any category in existence. So think about a dog. Okay, there's a certain essence or substance that, that makes it a dog. But some dogs have black hair and some dogs have brown hair and some dogs have yellow hair and some dogs have blue hair, right? I think blue chick hounds, right? Or orange hair. Uh, some, some dogs have four legs. There may be a dog that has three legs, right? Some dogs have long tails. Some dogs have short tails. Some dogs have uh, pointed ears that stick straight up. Other dogs have floppy ears that hang down. Those are all accidents, right? And so there's, they're, they're different kind of circumstantial things, differences between dogs, but all of those things are dogs. And so if you think about the essence, the core of what makes it a dog, that's the substance. If you think about all the other kind of particulars, that, those are the accidents, okay? People are that way, right? What is it, this is kind of controversial these days, but what is it that makes a, a man a man, right? There's a, 
there's a core of what makes a man a man, but some men are big men and some men are little men and some men are, are smart men and some men are, are dumb men and some men are you know, good-looking men and some men are not attractive men, right? And, and so those are all kind of accidents, okay? So when, the way that that applies to the Lord's Supper is there was this guy in the Catholic Church named Thomas Aquinas, and he's really, really important in the, in the Catholic Church in the history of theology. You may have heard that name before. You may not have. I don't know. Uh, some, sometimes people that, that, that follow him or some of his ideas are called Thomist ideas, right, from his name Thomas. And so Thomas Aquinas was this really, really important Catholic thinker, Catholic theologian, and he was a student of Aristotle, okay? Now, they weren't the same age. He wasn't like a really, he wasn't like his teacher, but he like studied his philosophy and bought into the things that Aristotle said and, and, and liked it. And so Thomas Aquinas became a follower of, a, of Aristotle many years later. And so when he, when he was explaining, when Thomas Aquinas was explaining what happens in the Lord's Supper, he came up with this word transubstantiation. That's a really big word, but it's, but it's also kind of a simple word. It's made up of two words, trans and substance. So trans means to change, right? Like the word transform, to change. And uh, substantiation comes from the word substance, which means that, that core, right? Not the accidents, not the, not the, uh, not the circumstantial stuff, but the, the core essence of, of what it is. And so what happens in the, in the Lord's Supper or what happens in the Mass is when the priest says the, uh, says the specific words, usually in Latin, says the specific words of institution of the, of the Mass, of the Lord's Supper, the accidents of the bread stays bread. And the accidents of the wine or the juice stays wine or juice. But the substance of the bread changes and becomes literally Jesus' body. And the substance of the wine or the juice changes and becomes literally Jesus' blood. That, that's why it's called transubstantiation, because at, at the words of institution, the substance changes. So if you pick up the bread, it still looks like bread and tastes like bread. And uh, if you drop it, I guess it sounds like bread, right? Smells like bread, all, all those kind of things. And so the, all the accidents stay bread, but the, 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 um, the, the, uh, the substance, the core essence of what it is, changes to where now it literally is the body, the physical body of Christ. And the same thing if you, with the wine or with the juice. And so it still tastes like juice, looks like juice. If you, if you pour it, 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 it flows like, like liquid juice does. Uh, but at the core of it, it's, it, it literally becomes Jesus' blood. And this is one reason, by the way, that historically, uh, it's a little bit different now, but historically when the, when the Catholic Church observed the Mass, had the Lord's Supper, the people in the, in the pews would come up and the priest would serve it to them, right? And the priest would give them the bread, but the priest would never give them the wine because they were afraid that as they, as they did, that the person might spill it or some of it might spill and, and the worry is that they didn't want Jesus' blood to spill on the ground, that that would be, uh, that would be disrespectful to his blood, that would be um, dishonoring to him if they let some of his blood fall to the ground. And so they would give the bread to all the people in the pews, and then uh, at the end of the Lord's Supper or part of that service, the priest would drink all of, um, usually wine. Sometimes they would get drunk off of the communion wine that was left, right? The, the wine that was left in the mass. So, so this is what, what they believe, okay? This is part of, of what they believe. 
And so why do they, why do they believe this? Let's look at a, at a few places. Look at Matthew chapter 26. And this is uh, parallel to what we just read in Mark. But Matthew chapter 26, verse 26. We're gonna be flipping quite a bit tonight. Matthew 26, 26 says, while they were eating, Jesus took some bread and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and listen to what he said. Take and eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup in verse 27 and given thanks, he gave it to them and saying, drink from it, all of you. Verse 28, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. And so a Catholic person will say, well, it's right there, right? Jesus says, this is my body. This is my blood. And so all we're trying to do is take the Bible seriously. You know, you Protestants always say that we value tradition above, above uh, the Bible, but all we're doing here is just trying to take the Bible seriously. It says, this is my body. This is my blood. And so how can the bread become Jesus's body? And how can the blood become Jesus's, uh, or how can the, the wine become Jesus's blood? And the answer is this, this idea, this process of transubstantiation where, yeah, it still looks like bread, it still tastes like bread, it still smells like wine, but it's actually Jesus' bread and Jesus' blood, just like he said, okay? Another place that they, uh, that they would point to is uh, 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 10. And we'll come back to several of these passages uh, throughout the night. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16 it says, is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Again, we take these things literally and the, the, the wine, the cup is the sharing in Jesus's blood and the bread is the sharing in Jesus's body, okay? And then another passage is John chapter six. And, and to be fair, uh, to, uh, to Catholic people, this may be the strongest passage uh, in, in the Bible for their view. Uh, I think their view's wrong, by the way, just full, full disclosure. But, but, but this may be the strongest passage they have. John chapter six, starting in verse 48. Uh, so Jesus is talking here, and he says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also, then the gift for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews began to argue with one another saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died, the manna, but he who eats this bread, Jesus' flesh, will live forever. Okay? 
And so the Catholic people would not, you know, they would say, yeah, this sounds really weird, right? It sounds really weird. But Jesus said this. Jesus said, you eat my flesh and drink my blood. And if you don't do those things, then you don't have life. And so the Catholic Church says, and that's, that's what we do. We're just following what he says and uh, what he commanded us. Okay? Uh, by the way, this is one reason that early on in the history of the church, uh, they were accused of being cannibals. Early Christians, I don't know if you knew that, but early Christians were accused of being cannibals because of passages like this, where it talked about eating my flesh and drinking my blood. Okay? They weren't really cannibals. They didn't really eat people's flesh and blood, but, but this passage made unbelievers who read this think that they did. Okay? So the, so the Catholic Church says, we're just looking at what the Bible says. It says it's his body. It says it's his blood. It says, eat me and eat my flesh and drink my blood, and you'll have eternal life. And we're just trying, trying to take those things seriously. Okay? Um, another aspect of the Catholic view of the Lord's Supper, though, is uh, that it is a sacrifice. That this is literally Jesus' body, and this is literally Jesus' uh, blood. Uh, those things become literally his body and blood. And so whenever we celebrate the Lord's Supper, whenever we do the Mass, which they do every day in, in most Catholic churches, for sure every, every time they have a service, because remember the service is called the Mass, but many Catholic churches have Masses every day that you can go and be part of if you want to. Um, but every time that that happens, there's a real sacrifice happening. And so you, you may remember last February we talked about baptism, and when we talked about uh, the Catholic view of baptism, uh, I told you that, that when someone is baptized, whether it be an infant or whether it be an, an adult convert to Catholicism, when someone is baptized by the Catholic Church or, or sprinkled, that they believe that that removes the guilt of sin, whatever sins they've committed up to that point. So if it's an infant, then it would just be original sin, inherited guilt or sin from, from Adam. If it's an adult who's converting to Catholicism, uh, then, then that would be all the sins in the past up to that, up to that moment. But from that point forward, after baptism forward, how are sins forgiven? Well, they go to confession to a priest, right? And the priest says, do these things. Pray 10 Hail Marys or, or, or whatever it might be. And then part of that is also taking the Mass. Uh, and, and through that, sins are forgiven through that continual sacrifice. And they would, they would point to a, to a few things. They would say, uh, look, at, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, this is the passage we looked at a lot last week that you're familiar with. This is usually the passage that we read here whenever we're having the Lord's Supper. But 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 and 24, Paul says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. And then he said, Do this in remembrance of me. Okay? And so they would say, if you, if you look at that, at that uh, passage, and if you read it in, in Greek, the word do, when it says, do this in remembrance of me, the word do can also be translated offer. Okay? If you go do this in remembrance of me, or offer this in remembrance of me. And then they say, if you, if you look at that word remembrance, if you look at how that word is used, in the, how that Greek word is used, and how the Hebrew equivalent word, how the Hebrew that means the same thing is used throughout the Old Testament and in the rest of the New Testament, anytime that word remembrance is used, it's in reference to a memorial, like, like a memorial sacrifice. It has sacrificial ideas behind it. And so they're saying, if you take those words, do this in remembrance to me, 
But if you, you could also translate them a different way to say, offer this as a sacrifice of me, okay? Again, I think that's wrong, but that's, that's one, of their, one of their arguments for that, okay? And if it really is Jesus's body and it really is Jesus's blood that's being broken every time you have the mass and being poured out every time you have the mass, then kind of you have to have some kind of explanation for what's happening there, right? And, and a sacrifice, kind of a continual sacrifice, a perpetual sacrifice for his people's sins is, um, is kind of a, a logical way to explain that, okay? I don't think it's right. Uh, we're not going to read these verses tonight, but hopefully you're familiar with them. Uh, Hebrews says that Jesus was sacrificed once for all, right? And there is no need for any further sacrifices. One reason we don't have priests today, one reason we believe we don't have priests today is because Hebrews says that. Hebrews says one of the problems with, uh, with priests in the Old Testament, not a, not a problem, but one of the weaknesses of priests in the Old Testament is they kept dying. Every time you had a priest, he would be a priest for a while, and then he would die. So you have to get a new priest. And that priest would live for a while, then he would die, you'd have to get a new priest. But Hebrews says now Jesus is our high priest forever because he's resurrected from the dead. And since he never dies, we never need another priest. And because his sacrifice, in the Old Testament, they had to keep offering sacrifices every year because the sacrifices uh, would, would kind of cover sins for that year, but then they would keep sinning and they would need another sacrifice. But now we don't do that because Jesus has offered his, his life as a sacrifice, his body as a sacrifice once for all. And it was a perfect sacrifice, so there's no need to repeat it. It's, uh, it's, it's enough to cover all sins, okay? So that's the, that's the Catholic view, kind of, a, kind of a short overview of the Catholic view. There's other things. Oh, one other thing I did want to say. Uh, we talked about this when we talked about the, Lord, the uh, baptism with the, with the Catholic view, but this is also true for, uh, for the Lord's Supper, for Mass, for, for their, their view of the Mass. Um, there's a phrase in the Catholic Church called ex opere operato, okay? Ex opere operato. It's a Latin phrase, and it means something like from the working, the work, or from the operation, uh, or from the operating, the operation. And, and what it means is, uh, this is true for baptism. It's also true for the for the mass. That the the mass itself works, no matter what. If you just do it, it works. So it doesn't matter if the person who is participating doesn't matter if that person's believing or not believing. Doesn't matter if that person's repenting or not repenting. None of that matters. All that matters is that that the mass is done. If you eat the bread, if you drink the the cup. Uh, it operates, it has, it, has, it has its own operation within itself. God's doing it through the sacrament. That's why it's called a sacrament, because it's, it's giving grace. It's a, it's a means of, of producing God's grace. Um, all that's needed is for the priest to perform the sacrament and for you to participate in it, whether you're believing or not believing, whether you're repenting or not repenting, none of that matters. It just matters that you're doing it. Same thing with, with baptism in the Catholic Church. Okay. All right, so that's a, a quick overview of, of that. You may have other questions about that. If you do, maybe we'll have a few minutes tonight and then we'll have time uh, on the 26th, okay? The second view is, is similar to transubstantiation, but, but also different, and it's called consubstantiation, okay? So transubstantiation is the changing of the substance, right? Trans and substance. Consubstantiation, the word, the word con or the prefix con means with, Okay, and so this is Martin Luther's, uh, and so con means with, and, and so what it means is that Jesus is literally present in and with and under the bread and the wine 
whenever the Lord's Supper is celebrated, okay? What does that mean? To be honest with you, nobody really knows. Martin Luther said that. He was trying to, he, he didn't want to be, uh, he didn't want to say that Jesus was, was literally present in the sacrifice the way that the Catholics do, but he also wanted to say that that, that, that phrase in Matthew 26 means something. So there was this famous meeting. Martin Luther uh, was, was one, of the, one of the earliest Protestant reformers. He, he lived in Germany. He was a German. Uh, he, he's the one that, that famously nailed the 95 Theses to the, to the door of the, of the Catholic Church there in, in Wittenberg and kind of uh, kind of started the Reformation, if you will. Uh, and, and so he was a German. But there were other, other people around at the same time, other people in the church at the same time who were reading the Bible and studying the Bible and coming to a lot of the same conclusions that Martin Luther had come to. There were, there were other people, in, in other words, there were other people around at the same time as Martin Luther that were becoming Protestant that were reading the Bible and saying, these things that we do in the Catholic Church is not what the Bible says, right? And so there was this guy that's really important, not as important as Luther, but really important, and his name was Ulrich Zwingli. And he lived in Sweden, and it was around the same time that Martin Luther lived. They didn't live the exact same dates, but they, their lives overlapped, and they were both kind of preaching and, and in, their, in their prime at the same time. And they had this meeting at this place called Marburg. It's, it's come to be known as the Marburg Colloquy. I don't really know exactly what colloquy means. I meant to look that up and forgot to. Uh, but I think it means like discussion or debate or something. And so, and it's called the Marburg Colloquy because it happened in, Mar- in, the, in the Marburg Castle in Germany. And so Zwingli, Ulrich Zwingli came to, uh, to Germany and he met with Martin Luther and they were wanting to, to try to figure out, they were so close on all these different beliefs about what the Bible said. And so they were trying to figure out, can we get together and kind of join forces? and help merge another and encourage one another and, and work with each other and kind of our two movements become one, kind of merge them together. And in, in a lot of ways they could, a lot of, in, in, in a lot of ways they agree with each other, they agree with each other about salvation by grace through faith, right? Justification by faith alone. Um, scripture was the only authority. A, a lot of these things they agreed on, but one thing they could not agree on was what's happening in the Lord's Supper. And one of the famous things that happened in that meeting that's come down to us through church history is they're at that, they're, they're there in their meeting and Martin Luther is sitting at a, at a table or a desk that, that is where, he's, where he is and he took a knife out and he carved in the wood of the desk of the table, this is my body. Because he wanted to take that passage in Matthew 26 seriously. And he carved that in there and he was saying, he, he, as, as a reminder to himself, not to let this man, th- this other guy, Zwingli, talk me out of this, not to let him ca- uh, cause me to compromise on this, right? But, and that's and and so he's taking his conviction that Mark or Matthew twenty six twenty six and, and other passages that say this is my body. Martin Luther is, is taking that seriously. That 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 means something. He wants to take the word of God seriously, and he wants that to he wants to hold to that. But he doesn't want to go as far as the Catholics and say that the, the, the bread and the wine change into Jesus' body and blood and that it's a new sacrifice and those kind of things. Um, and so he comes up with this idea called consubstantiation, that Jesus is present in and with and under the bread, but the bread doesn't turn into his body. Martin Luther also would not say that it's a sacrifice, um, but, he, but he, wanted to be, he wanted to take that passage seriously. And so that's come to be known as consubstantiation. Okay, it's different from the Catholic view. Um, it doesn't go as far as the Catholic view, 
but in some ways it's similar to the Catholic view. Um, and again, it's hard to even really know exactly what, what Martin Luther meant when he said in, with, and under the, the bread and the wine. But he's trying to get at Jesus is there in a, in a physical sense, but he's not there the way the Catholic Church says he's there, and it's not because of the sacrifice. Okay, but it's really it's it's really hard to understand because because I, I don't think Martin Luther really understood exactly what he meant by it either. He's just trying to say the Bible says this is my body, and the Bible says this is my my, my blood, and and I believe that, and I want to believe that, and I don't really understand exactly how that's true, but I want to hold to that being true. Okay. Um, the next view, the third view, is the uh, the spiritual presence view. Okay. Uh, and this is this has come down through history mainly as the Presbyterian view, okay? Uh, but it's the the spiritual presence view, um, and so so th- th- this and this was was put forth by John Calvin and, and others, um, and, and he he was looking at the Catholic view. Remember, all these guys are responding to the Catholic view because they were Catholics and they're they're starting to read the Bible and come out of that, and so he was looking at the Catholic view. And, and, and a couple of things that, or one thing especially he came up with is that transubstantiation doesn't really make sense. Uh, not, not just for the philosophical reasons of substance versus accidents and all that kind of stuff, but, but he said if you think about Jesus' body, Jesus only has one body, right? He had, he had a physical body. He was crucified. He died. He was buried. And then he was resurrected and he went to heaven with that same body, right? That same body was resurrected. Now, it was, it was a glorified body, and there's some differences there, but it was the same body. The, the body that he died with came back to life in the grave, rose from the grave, and, and that Jesus with that body went up to heaven. And so he said, if Jesus, if all these Catholic churches are having mass at the same time, how can Jesus' body be at all those different places at the same time? He's only got one body, right? If they're saying he's physically, literally present there, the essence of, of the elements, the bread and the wine, become the essence of Jesus' body, or vice versa. The essence of Jesus' body becomes the essence of the bread and the wine. Well, how can that happen in every church at the same time? If he's only got one. And so his body's not omnipresent, right? His, his body's physical like ours. We can only be in one place at a time. And so how can Jesus be in more than one place at a time? There's also, he's also saw problems with the sacrifice, with it being a sacrifice. He also um, uh, just saw problems with that philosophical view that something can change its essence but keep the same outward characteristics. Um, he saw that as a problem. So, so what, he, what he said is when we think about uh, Matthew 26, and we're going to look at some other passages, but when we think about Matthew 26 where Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood, uh, John Calvin said that, yes, Jesus said that, and yes, Jesus meant that, and yes, that's true, but he wasn't saying that literally. He was saying that symbolically or figuratively, right? And, and one of the reasons we know that, and I, I think he was right when he said that, uh, and one of the reasons we know that is because he's saying, this is my body, right? Well, where is his body? Is it the bread he's holding, or is it his body that's holding the bread? Right, his, I mean, his body was right there before the, in, in front of them. But he's holding this bread out and saying, this is my body. And so the way, the way that that makes sense the most is Jesus is saying, this is, uh, this is a symbol or, a, or, or figuratively my body, right? This represents my body. This stands in, in place of my body. And the same thing with the, with the, the wine and the, and the blood, right? 
And so he said, so Calvin said, this is, this is, uh, this is symbolic. This is figurative. His, Jesus' body can't be in two places at once. He can't be, his body can't be holding his body unless you like cut an arm off or something and hold that. But then you're just holding part of your body. Uh, but, but he's saying this, you know, he, his body was there in front of them. And so this bread in this, in this cup is, is symbolic or figurative representative of his body. Okay. So, so a couple other passages to, to, uh, okay, but, but he did say, so, so that's true. So it's, so it's figurative, it's symbolic, but he did want to say that there really is a sense where Jesus is present in the Lord's supper. And so he said, Jesus is present in the Lord's supper, but Jesus is present spiritually. Not physically, his, the, the, wine, the wine and the bread don't become his body. It's not a physical thing. Those things are symbolic, figurative uh, representatives of his body and blood. Uh, but Jesus really is present with his people in a, in a spiritual sense in, in the Lord's Supper. And so he points to a, to a few passages. One is Matthew chapter 18. And in Matthew chapter 18... Uh, you've probably quoted this verse before, whether you know the reference or not. Uh, but verses 19 and 20, Jesus says, Again, I say to you that if two or more, or that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, I will do it for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. And he says, this is what's happening when we have the Lord's Supper. And think about last week when we talked about the horizontal aspect of the Lord's Supper, how it really is a communion between, between us and each other, and it really is a, a uniting thing among his church. And so Calvin says that Jesus is present among his people spiritually in the Lord's Supper. And we really do come in contact with him. We really do have a vertical aspect as well. We really do have a, have a connection with, with God, with Jesus, through the Lord's Supper. It, it, there is something going on in our relationship with God, with Jesus, in the Lord's Supper. He's present with us in the Lord's Supper in a, in a different way or in a fuller way or, or, or however you want to think about that than he is when we're not taking the Lord's Supper. Okay? He also, uh, he also pointed to Matthew chapter 28. Y'all are familiar with that passage, I think, the, the Great Commission, the, the final words of Jesus, where he says, behold, I'm with you always, right? Now, he's going up into heaven. He's about to ascend into heaven, and yet he says, I'm with you always. And so he's with them in a, in a spiritual sense. He's with us in a spiritual sense. And so Calvin says that's what happens in, in the Lord's Supper. Uh, it, it's, it's not a physical thing at all, um, but, but Jesus really is present in a way uh, in a, in a spiritual way uh, through the Lord's Supper, okay? Now, he, he would also say, and, and this kind of term comes, comes up in like Presbyterian churches and, and things, he would also say that the Lord's Supper really is uh, a means of grace, meaning it's a, it's a, um, it, it's a means of grace. It's, a, it's an avenue that, that by which grace comes to us, right? It's an avenue by which grace comes to us. And so he's present, Jesus is present in the Lord's Supper in a way that he's not present at other times. The Lord's Supper really has something special going on between us and God, but it's a spiritual thing. It's not a, not a physical thing at all. And definitely it's not a, uh, it's not another sacrifice. Absolutely. Okay. Um, the fourth view is the Methodist view, and it's basically the same as the Presbyterian view, the best I can tell. Okay. I don't have a lot of experience with the Methodist view, but from everything that I've, that I've read from, from Methodist sources and things, it's, it's basically the same view as the, as the Presbyterian view, okay? Uh, the fifth view 
is the Pentecostal view, okay? Uh, and the Pentecostal view is basically the same as the memorial view. We're going to take, talk about the memorial view next. It's our, it's our, our, it's our uh, sixth way. The fifth way is the Pentecostal view. The sixth view is the memorial view. And the Pentecostal view is basically the same as, as, as the next one, the last one, um, other than uh, there's with, with, and it's hard to say what the Pentecostal view is or what the charismatic view is because there's so many different types of charismatic churches and charismatic groups. And there's even, even several different types of Pentecostal groups and each one differ from one another, right? But generally speaking, uh, the Pentecostal view is similar to the, to the memorial view that we're going to talk about next. But there's often also a connection between the Lord's Supper and physical healing, okay? And that kind of makes sense if you think about uh, how, how Pentecostal or, or more charismatic um, more charismatic groups think about Jesus' death even. Remember, they, they, they uh, highlight and, and focus that passage in healing. Isaiah 53, that by my stripe you are healed. And they, they take that to mean physical healing, sicknesses, things like that. And so since the Lord's Supper is uh, a reflection on looking back on Jesus' death, there's some kind of connection there between the Lord's Supper and physical healing. And so often... Uh, they would say they believe that often physical healing comes through the Lord's Supper or is somehow connected to the Lord's Supper as that's a, a memorial to, a, a, a reminder of, a reflection on Jesus' death, which is the basis for our physical healing in their view. Okay? So the last view, the sixth view, is the memorial view. And historically, this has been what most Baptist churches have, have believed. Okay? Uh, and, and this view, remember I talked a little bit ago about Martin Luther and that guy from Sweden named Ulrich Zwingli? Uh, well, Ulrich Zwingli is, is kind of the, the, um, the proponent of the memorial view. This was what he thought. So this is what he and Martin Luther disagreed on and couldn't, couldn't come to, a, to an agreement on. So the memorial view um, says that, that Matthew 26, or, or yeah, Matthew 26, this is my body, this is my blood, that that's symbolic, that's figurative for the same reasons that, that Calvin did. That, you know, he, it's his body holding his body, right? And, and so that and his body can't be everywhere at the same time. And so they, they, uh, he says that it's, it's figurative or symbolic. And then he looks at some other places, because remember, uh, Martin Luther carved that in the, in the desk. This is my body, right? But, but he pointed out, Zwingli pointed out some other places in the Bible where the word is, is used symbolically or figuratively. Okay, so, so look at or listen to John chapter 6. Uh, John six thirty five says, yeah, 35 says, um, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will, know, will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. So Jesus says, I am the bread of life, right? The same word, am, is the, the English to be verb. Um, he says, I am the bread of life. But Zwingli saying that's a symbolic use of that word, right? Um, and, and the next passage kind of shows it even more. John chapter 10, flip over just a couple of chapters if you're looking with us. Chapter 10, verse 7. So Jesus said to them again, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Okay. Well, Jesus is not saying that he's literally a door, right? A, a wooden door on hinges. He's using that symbolically. I'm, I'm the way, I'm the entrance way, I'm the way that the sheep come in, right? And so he's using that as a symbolic figurative way. And he uses that, that same word, am, that way. I am 
the door doesn't mean I'm literally a wooden you know, door with windows in it and a door hinge and, and handles and that kind of thing. It's a figurative, symbolic thing. And then uh, another one is in uh, John chapter 15. In John 15, 15, uh, not 15, 15, 15, 5. In John 15, 5, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. And so Jesus, again, says, I am the vine. But he's not saying I'm literally a plant, right? Uh, he's, saying, he's using that symbolically. He's saying I'm the source that you get your life from. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Everything you have comes from me. And so it's, he, he's, there, there's several places in the Bible where Jesus can, can use this, this word is and, and, and it be symbolic or figurative. So just because he says this is my body doesn't mean we have to be so hardline, hardcore, this has to be a literal thing uh, like Martin Luther was doing at that meeting when he carved that in the desk, okay? Um, and, then, and then he would point to uh, the passage we spent a lot of time looking at last week, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We've already read it, I think, once tonight. But just a reminder to you, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, verses 24 and 25. Uh, this, he had given thanks. He, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, and after, also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so Zwingli would point to that passage and say, the, the key thing that's happening in the Lord's Supper is the remembering. And, and that's why he calls it the memorial view. That the main thing happening in the Lord's Supper is it is a memorial to Jesus' death. It's a reminder to Jesus' death. Okay, and we talked about that some last week, how that's one aspect of the Lord's Supper. And then Paul, in that same passage, Paul says, you proclaim my death until I come. And so there's a future looking as well. But, but he focuses on this on this looking back and remembering, um, remembering the, the Lord's death in the Lord's Supper. Okay, so that's the memorial view. And so then going back to the Pentecostal view, they agree pretty much with the same thing, except that there's some kind of connection with, with physical healing there. Okay? So conclusion, uh, what is it that, that I think, uh, and I don't think we've really talked about much, or pastors here about whether we're on the same page with this, with this stuff or not, uh, but what I would say is, uh, generally, I, I think I agree with that last view, the memorial view. The Lord's Supper is mainly a memorial, a reminder, a looking back at what Jesus has done. Um, but, but I think there's maybe a combination, maybe there's a, an aspect of the spiritual presence as well. That the Lord's Supper really is a communion between us and God and between us and each other. But it really is a communion between us and God. But here, here's where I think I would be a little bit different than like the Presbyterian view. Um, the Lord, I guess I would even say the Lord's Supper maybe is a means of grace. Last week we talked about how the Lord's Supper is, is a visual sermon, how we're preaching to one another and reminding one another of, of, of what Jesus did for us and what he's going to do. We're looking to the future. So, so it is kind of a visual sermon. And so I, I think I would say the Supper is kind of a, men, a means of grace, but only as a sermon. Not just because, only because it symbolizes the gospel. You understand what I'm trying to say? It's not just that we eat the bread and we drink the, the wine or the juice, and so God's grace comes to, to us through that. But we receive God's grace as we see the gospel enacted in the Lord's Supper. We receive God's grace as we, uh, as we, uh, as we have the Lord's Supper together, and, and, and we, rem 
we're reminding ourselves of what Jesus has done, right? And, and that, that's how we receive God's grace. So Jesus is present when we take the Lord's Supper, but he's, he's really, I don't think he's any more present than when we preach the gospel on a Sunday morning or when we sing gospel songs together on a Sunday morning, or even when we uh, fellowship with one another and encourage one another and, and, and love one another as a, as a church body, right? Um, thinking about that Catholic phrase, the ex opere operato, that just in, in, in the sacrament itself, it works. I don't think that's true, right? It's not, it's not in the things themselves it's working. It's in the things that they point to that it works. As they point to the gospel, the gospel works. And as they point to what Jesus has done for us, and we trust in that, then we receive the, the grace from that. Hope, hope that makes sense. All right, we got just a few minutes, about eight minutes, seven, eight minutes. Uh, any questions or comments or thoughts? You guys may want to comment on what I just said at the end there about, about those views. Yeah. Absolutely right. I don't, I don't know if you're here, but Jim. Was